I'm Marty Moscow-Wayne. Welcome to The Connection, where each Friday we explore the bonds that unite us, the forces that can drive us apart, the conflicts that prevent us from exploring life's possibilities, and the qualities that make us unique and human. Now, I've been a longtime tennis fan and for years enjoyed the rivalry between Serena and Venus Williams. Their styles of play on the court were so different, as were their personalities, at least publicly. But even more fascinating was their close relationship as sisters. Here's what Serena said about Venus at the 2022 U.S. Open, Serena's last match. And I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be Serena if it wasn't Venus, so thank you, Venus. She's the only reason that Serena Williams ever existed. Today on the show, siblings and how they shape who we are. They are the longest relationship we will probably ever have. Most of us have a brother or sister or both. I have both. While there can be closeness and support, there can also be jealousy and rivalry and full-out conflict. So today in The Connection, Why Siblings Matter, why they can be so different from each other, how to heal old wounds and how to stay close when work and family and geography and just the busyness of life can pull us apart. We have two guests who have joined us. Carl Pillemer is professor of human development at Cornell University, also professor of gerontology and medicine at the Weill Cornell Medical College. He's the author of a book titled Fault Lines, Fractured Families and How to Mend Them. And Carl Pillemer, nice to have you with us on The Connection. Oh, well, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Nice to have you with us. And also with us is Lori Kramer. She's a professor of applied psychology at Northeastern University, and she is a clinical psychologist. And Lori Kramer, nice to have you with us on The Connection as well. Thank you so much for having me. You're very welcome. You know, I was thinking about this, and I, I mentioned this in, in the billboard to the show, which is there's a lot that's been written on the, the parent-child relationship and, and for all the obvious reasons. But it seems that the sibling relationship hasn't, got the, hasn't gotten the same amount of attention. And I wonder, Carl Pillimer, why you think that is. You know, that's a very good question. I think in part, and I'm sure Lori can comment on this, after children become adults, there's what we sometimes term intimacy at a distance, where the importance of some of these relationships fades a little bit. So there's a long period of perhaps a diminished interaction, and maybe that's one reason why scholars, at least in adulthood, uh, haven't treated it as so critical. But I'm sure, as Lori can say, of course, there's been pretty extensive research on sibling relationships and parental uh, differential treatment and favoritism, et cetera, in younger childhood. It, it just somehow hasn't carried over so much after children or siblings become adults. And Lori, you have studied uh, young children a lot. What is your interest in siblings? I'm very interested in how these are formative relationships. I think just as you know, we heard in the clip, our relationships with our siblings are pretty fundamental, especially when we're growing up, still living together in the same household. We're influenced, we're always watching, we're aware of what our siblings doing, and we form a lot of ideas about why they're doing that and how people are responding to them. And all of those factors, I believe, work together to really help individual children and adolescents sort of figure out who they are. And sometimes that's in reaction to how they perceive their siblings. And yes, we haven't really studied this enough to really <laughs> fully understand how. Well, that's why you are both here. And Lori, can we think of our siblings as 
among our first teachers? I think they are. I mean, I think that we know that there are uh, friendships and peer relationships that young children have nowadays as they're going into childcare and experiences with with cousins and other family members. But this experience of growing up every day, day in, day out with another child and sharing resources right. <laughs> with that child and you know being parented by the same parents um, and going through life together certainly is a very meaningful experience and and we're just starting to uncover the significance of that we often hear and it's certainly true in my family that siblings are so can be so different from each other carl is that surprising should that surprise us you know it's true and in our uh uh the studies we find this same thing that within family differences are extraordinarily pronounced uh, to the extent that it's been quipped that your siblings are in some ways no more similar to you than our randomly selected other individuals. So there is an interesting facet that people share their environment as they're growing up and in many cases share half their genes and yet there is uh, such a pronounced uh, difference among siblings. You know, I'd also add that those differences play out. One thing I think it's important to remember is that we're in the midst of something which has never happened before demographically, uh, namely an enormous increase in shared lifetime in families. Mm. Never have people before had decades, six or seven or more decades after childhood to spend with siblings. So I think uh, that's where you also see both patterns of support, but also difference emerging. And just the fact that we are living so long, is that what you're saying, Carl? Yeah, um, exactly right. It's one of the major demographic shifts in history that parents and children have such long shared lifetime. I interviewed in one of our studies a 108-year-old woman hmm. whose 103 and 101-year-old siblings <laughs> were still alive and they were still in regular contact. Wow. Uh, this won't happen to everyone, but I would second what Laurie says um, in uh, emphasizing the importance of these relationships as genuinely reliable, lifelong ones, potentially, for 80 or 90 years is really important to think about. Well, let's think about toddlers and, and uh, you know, kids that are 7, 8, 9, 10 years old, Lori, and thinking about siblings, thinking that they, yes, they share uh, genes and they share parents largely, but do they grow up and are they sort of living in different families, even though they're all in the same family, <laughs> if you know what I mean? <laughs> Isn't that strange? But yes. it's in many ways, that's true. Uh, can you imagine a family that just has one child, you know, their firstborn <laughs> child? Parents are, you know, so excited to have this new child in their family. And I believe that it, they're so motivated to try to understand this child, to interpret every action, every vocalization, and try to understand what this child needs and wants. And it, this child grows up in that kind of family environment where all the adults are really interested in them. <laughs> They're center stage, and people are really motivated to help them achieve their own goals. Well, as you have subsequent 
children enter the family, the family environment's very different. Parents are more experienced. They've been through a lot of this with their firstborn child, and their task is really different. It's In fact, it's, I think it's pretty stressful. They've got to figure out how to nurture this relationship between their children. That's tough. So in a lot of ways, the family environment is really, really different, and it changes as additional children may be brought into the family as well. And I think that is probably one reason why children seem to be so different. Siblings seem to be so different from one another. I I wonder, too, whether children, even young children, pick roles. They see that their older brother or sister is, you know, is is bookish, let's say, um, and they end up Mm -hmm. being more athletic. And, and Laurie, do they sort of, are they choosing this or this is just something kind of hardwired for them? (laughs) It is so interesting. There is a theory called sibling de-identification, and it's that idea that we figure out what we want to do, who we are, what our interests are, where our talents are, in response to how we perceive our siblings. So there's many cases that are documented where you can hear a child say, well, you know, my older brother's really smart. He's getting A's in school. I'll never be able to compete with that. So I'm not even going to try. I'm going to focus my energies maybe in sports or my social life or the arts or some other factor. And I think that, you know, certainly seems to be another reason why kids in uh, the same family may turn out to to seem very very different from one another. Carl, let me go back to you, and I'm, I, we should focus on parents because obviously they play uh, such an important role raising these children. But I wonder for parents whether um, there's a kind of balancing act between treating children as individuals and as different people, but also treating them fairly, if you know what I mean. You're right. There's a tremendous tension between uh, equality and fairness in a way that we have powerful social norms that all children should be treated equally. And of course, that's never possible really in a family. One kid has a talent, the other one doesn't, or a kid has special needs. So parents have to direct their attention differentially and allocate it uh, differentially in that sense. Uh, The one thing we found in our studies, and I think it's also... Uh, supported by studies of younger children is that inequality or unequal treatment can work out in families if it's seen as fair. Hmm. So if a child is a talented figure skater and and mom or dad have to spend some more time with her or if another child has special needs and requires more time, if uh, the fairness is communicated, so even though unequal treatment may not be possible, a certain sense of fairness is. And we do find that uh, extending over the life course, this continual pressure in families around whether our siblings and we are being treated equally and whether that treatment is fair. And it's a source of considerable conflict uh, in families as they evolve over decades of adulthood, for sure. And probably as some of the earlier life course patterns from childhood persist. Well, and Lori, picking up on that, and I'm assuming... Mm-hmm. Um, having raised a child and having been one, is that children are watching their parents like hawks. <laughs> so they know yes. how, how everyone's getting treated in the family. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, we've done some research on this topic with um, adolescents. And again, this idea of fairness seems to be paramount. Every time kids are, are watching, you know, who's getting what, who's getting more, who's getting more time, attention, affection, 
discipline, you know, both the positive and negative spheres of things. And it's really interesting because, at least in adolescence, they come up with reasons why they think this is happening. And it's really interesting what they come up with. But bottom line is, if they believe that their parents are treating them and their sibling differently for a good reason, uh, maybe because the parents are trying to meet a specific need Mm -hmm. that the other sibling has, they tend to believe that that differential treatment is fair. And that seems to be really important because when kids feel that there is differential treatment and it's and it's fair, it's no longer related to some of the negative outcomes that we tend to see, like reports of poor sibling relationships or poor parent-child relationships or even feeling poorly about themselves. So that idea of fairness is, is really important. Um, But we also find that families don't usually have a lot of conversations (laughs) to explore some of these different perspectives and attributions that kids and parents are making about differential treatment. And in fact, in one study, we found that, you know, two kids and two parents agreed about just the occurrence of differential treatment only about 36% of the time, which is not a lot, considering that they're all living together. (laughs) In in the same house, largely, where we're going to take a very short break, and I do want to pick up on that and talk um, about sibling rivalry, as it is described. That's Laurie Kramer. Also with us is uh, Carl Pillemer joining us today on The Connection. We're talking about siblings, the importance of our relationship with our brothers and our sisters, how they influence who we are how we influence them. Much more to talk about after this very short break. We'll be right back. This is The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Marty Moscow-Wayne. We are talking about the longest relationship most of us will have, and that is with a sibling, whether a brother or a sister, someone who, unlike a friend or a partner, we didn't choose to bring into our lives, but nonetheless, we spend... Uh, Decades living with and thinking about them. Carl Pillemer, professor of human development at Cornell University, author of a book called Fault Lines, Fractured Families and How to Mend Them. Lori Kramer is a professor of applied psychology at Northeastern University and a clinical psychologist. Well, I do want to talk about sibling rivalry. And Carl, let me start with you, and then we will play a clip from Hannah and her sisters. But just what is what is the... What is the job, I guess, if I can put it that way, uh, of sibling rivalry? What is being accomplished here? You know, I think it's different uh, in childhood, and I'd be interested to hear what Lori has to say. In general, there's an assumption that a lot of sibling rivalry is due to attaining parental attention, so that it's a way of gathering parents' attention. But, you know, there are folks, and this this may be controversial, but from an evolutionary perspective, too, there's a sense of of children competing for scarce resources at times, and parents have to be very careful to create this level uh, playing field. I will say that when children become adults, there's a suspension of some of this. It may always exist, but because there's greater distance, because the relationships are more voluntary after you leave the parental household, the rivalry continues but is less acute. 
I have a sense that it's really at its strongest in young childhood and adolescence. Well, let me play a, a, a scene from uh, Hannah and Her Sisters. This is, uh, of course, a 1986 film. And these are three sisters played by Diane Weist, who is Holly, Mia Farrow, who is Hannah, and Barbara Hershey, who is Lee, having lunch. And tensions quickly arise. You treat me like a loser. How? You never have any faith in my plans. You always undercut my enthusiasm. Not so. No, I think I've been very supportive. I, I try to give you honest, constructive advice. I'm, I'm always happy to help you financially. I think I've gone out of my way to, to introduce you to interesting single men. There's uh, nothing losers. I, oh, all boy. losers. You're too demanding. You know, I could always tell what you thought of me by the type of men you fixed me up You're with. crazy. That's not true. Hey, Hannah, I know I'm mediocre. Oh, you stop attacking oh, Hannah. Okay. She's going through a really rough time right now. Why are you so upset? You know, you've been picking on her ever since she came in here, and I just leave her alone for a while. I'm just suffocating. What's the matter with you, Lee? Why are you so sensitive all of a sudden? So, Laurie, I'm going to have you diagnose this family. (laughs) So what happened in their childhood so that they're still squabbling as adults? (laughs) <laughs> yes, I, I don't remember the movie, <laughs> but okay. I remember I loved it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, um, it, it feels like there's um, some patterns that uh, patterns of interaction, patterns of um, maybe rivalry, competition, um, clearly a sense of you know monitoring each other's behaviors and um, their attitudes, their communications in ways so that each of the three of them have their own idea about what's happening. It's almost like their three different realities are, are there. Um, but clearly, they take it all personally. They feel um, challenged, and um, some of this feels a little hostile, the, sure. this rivalry. Um, but old issues, yes, probably that's the fact that they've never openly discussed. They've never probably spent time to um, examine some of their attributions and interpretations of each other's intentions, what's behind some of those statements, yet they act as if their perception of what happened is reality. Um, Mm. But they each have a different reality of of what's happened. Would a good family, would a good family therapist help them out? Absolutely. <laughs> no C- doubt. <laughs> Carl, sound like you want to add something to that. Go ahead. Oh, oh I was just I was just agreeing on uh, um, basically on all accounts. You know, I think uh, that one of the factors in adult sibling relationships, and I think this applies to that clip, and that is a great movie, the, is, is the notion of expectations, that there are powerful expectations for who your siblings should be as adults. So we have many expressions like your sibling should have your back, your sister should be your best friend, brothers stand up for one another. And the more that people can distance themselves from those kinds of sociocultural expectations, often the better off they are. What I hear in that clip is disappointment. And to use the cliche, expectations Mm -hmm. or disappointments waiting to happen. You know, it's a sense of what these siblings ought to be. And when sibling relationships improve, at least from our research, there's a sense of dropping some of these overblown expectations for who your siblings should be and what they should be for you Hmm. um, and developing a more realistic assessment in a sense that the relationship becomes somewhat more like friendship than one that is you know, gummed together by these overwhelming bonds of attachment. Well, Laura, going back, and let's go, let's go back to these sisters as, and, uh, you know, we won't 
diagnose this whole family here, but, <laughs> you know, let, let's take younger children that are squabbling with each other. Mm-hmm. And let's say it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's really disrupting family life. How do you suggest parents, if not intervene, at least try to mediate whatever's going on here? I know. It's really, really, really challenging. Some of my research has clocked, oh, I think about um, seven to nine conflicts an hour (laughs) Uh, between kids who are like three to seven years of age. Is that typical or or that's, that's a problem? These were average. No, I think these were average kids um, not coming in for any clinical reason at all. Um, And we were only looking at what I call extended conflict. So not just the sort of, you know, mom, he looked at me (laughs) again, sort of comment, uh, but things that involve some mutual opposition, some arguments. Um, that were extended over time, typically for over, you know, an average of about 45 seconds. So imagine being a parent, (laughs) having Mm. to modulate those kinds of interactions all day long. Um, This is really tough. It's really challenging and stressful for parents. Um, In my research, you know, we've, we've tried to look at how young siblings develop and form this relationship over time and what are the factors that predict better outcomes for kids and we've used some of that information to turn it around and develop a program for kids um, that actually teaches them some of the skills that seem to be helpful in reducing conflict and building pro-social relationships overall. And now we have a program that's online for parents, uh, for kids who are between the ages of four and eight. Um, it's called More Fun with Brothers and Sisters. I'm sorry, hmm. More Fun with Sisters and Brothers. So people are welcome to, to check us out online. Um, but the basic idea is that we want to help parents and help kids build the positive in their relationship. There is likely always going to be some form of disagreement and conflict and some negative emotions in sibling interactions in childhood and adolescence. But how can we um, build up the positive, that sense of warmth and engagement of having some fun together, even though there's still likely going to be some negativity happening? Um, how can we build that up? And that's where we're, we're really focusing by teaching kids a set of social and emotional competencies that research has shown to be helpful. And I do want to get back to that, but Carla, let's, let's toggle ahead then. Let's say these ongoing conflicts, jealousies, rivalries, whatever they are, let's say they extend into adulthood. Um, same, same approach to try to de-escalate the conflicts between siblings? Well, the reason why I think that kind of program for young children is brilliant is that there's so little available for it and very little available specifically for adult siblings. At one point, we surveyed academic uh, individuals who were teaching family therapy and found that if there were persistent problems like estrangement or difficulty among siblings, there was really very little options for therapy for people who specifically focused on it. Mm-hmm. So I think the one thing we're lacking is exactly that, this kind of way to bring siblings together. I will say on the positive side, when you look at, at research on the family, the good news is most of us do survive these early relationships. And if you look at surveys of siblings, the vast majority report relatively warm relationships with siblings. So most adults 
are pretty close to their siblings. However, in the smaller number which aren't, it's obviously very troubling. And there's not a lot of options. It's very hard for family therapists to bring three siblings together in adulthood, for example. So I think we need exactly that kind of uh, um, intervention development for adult siblings that Lori is talking about. It. it exists to some extent around the issue of care for parents, but that's another issue probably for later. Well, let me play another clip, uh, clip and uh, each week uh, on The Connection, we'll be asking a question that we hope will get your response either to our voicemail or to email. And this, w- this week we asked about your relationship with your siblings, what it takes to maintain it, and here's what we heard from a few listeners. Hi, my name is Danielle, and I am from Hershey, Pennsylvania. I have three siblings, and I would say that we have an extremely amazing relationship, and they are my best friends. This is Suella, and I live in Hatboro. I have one sister who's four years older than I am. She lives in Memphis. We do talk every single week on Sunday morning for at least two hours. In general, we do have the same memories of things in our family, obviously different interpretations, different reasons why, but basically we agree on on most things. Hi, Marty. My name is Connie. Your question about maintaining a good relationship with siblings, I can't say for us that there's a hard part, actually. I'm one of five. We all get along. We have great conversations. We eat a lot of meals together as often as we can, especially on birthdays and holidays. And we live within 15 minutes of each other. And they're just fun to be with. Now, that's not scientific. It's anecdotal. But what's interesting, Carl, and to you, Lori, as well, is, you know, we tend to focus on the negative. But what we heard were three really loving and positive descriptions of of sibling relationships. Carl, do you want to take that first? Yeah, just a quick word. You know, I think it was Harry Truman who wanted a one-armed economist because everyone else kept saying, on the other hand. (laughs) And so I'm going to do that here. Even though the vast majority, or like a one-armed social scientist, I guess we could say, the vast majority of sibling relationships are positive. However, we can't ignore the fact that in adulthood, there is fairly extensive conflict and estrangement among siblings. So in a survey I did that I presented in the book, around 9% of Americans have some level of estrangement from one of their siblings, um, by which I mean they haven't seen that individual for a year or more and consider themselves estranged. So you have to look at both sides. For a number of people, there is a break in the sibling bond that's very challenging to deal with because you have this past history of attachment uh, that started. So I think you have to keep both in mind that in general, most people get along reasonably well, but in a significant minority, these these relationships, at least for periods of time, can be very problematic and, and distressing. And distressing because this is someone you grew up with, you know, who, who knows you like nobody else. Right. The idea, you know, people can push our buttons because they installed them. I mean, <laughs> that is a little <laughs> yeah, bit. Yeah, they of know the, where they no, are. <laughs> right. Well, we also have this sense in families, and I think it's why sibling rivalry in childhood is so great, that sort of anything goes, that you don't have to treat your family members as you would friends or coworkers. So like in the clip you played, the siblings feel free to unload on their brothers and sisters in a way that we wouldn't in other relationships. And then that adds into this sort of spiraling tension. 
Laurie, we've been talking sort of generically about siblings and not brothers and sisters or sisters and sisters, brothers and brothers. Um, mm-hmm. w- are there different sort of dynamics related to the, the sex of the child? You know, there are, um, but it's not conclusive. Having a sister tends to be a really good predictor of better sibling relationships for both men and women. Um, There's some evidence that suggests that having an opposite sex sibling can be really helpful and give you maybe a little preparation for uh, romantic relationships later in life, meaning that you've had some experience growing up with someone of a different gender, those types of, uh, you know, heterosexual romantic relationships might benefit from a result of that, um, those experiences and what you've learned as a result. But with young children, we do know that um, as children become siblings for the first time, there's a slight advantage for girls. They tend to adjust a little bit more quickly and and maybe more positively. But um, so many other factors were much more important in predicting the quality of the sibling relationship down the road. Everybody talks about gender differences and people talk about age differences between siblings. But really, when it came down to it, it was kids who had more abilities in the social and emotional spheres that tended to develop the most positive relationships with their siblings down the road and kept that going um, for as long as I studied them. And is that because young adulthood? Yeah, uh, yeah, because parents were able to sort of help them navigate these these potential conflicts. I think that um, it had something to do with parenting, but these were the kids that we were studying. We looked at the connections before before they became siblings. We looked at their friendship relationships hmm. with other kids. We were very interested to see what the quality of these relationships might be. And whether that might transfer in some respect to their new relationship that they were going to develop with their with their siblings once they were born. So we studied these families when moms were in their last trimester of pregnancy and followed them. Last time I saw these families, the older, the firstborn kids were uh, leaving the family for college. Mm. Uh, so it was really interesting. But what we saw was a very powerful correlations between the quality of friendships that these firstborn kids had um, and the quality of the relationship that they built with their sibling. And we looked more specifically to try to figure out what all that was about and, and really saw that it was kids who were able to engage in some play, uh, continuous play with a friend. They had fun. They were pretending. They were able to manage the emotional climate of their play so it didn't become too negative and they were able to resolve conflicts with their friends. Those kinds of social and emotional competencies seem mm-hmm. to play very well and prepare them for becoming a sibling. And, and Carl, that, that makes a lot of sense, but it isn't, and I know people that have sort of used, uh, you know, siblings and friends almost interchangeably, of uh, seeing them as sort of one and the same. Are they? I think that's a really great question, and I have just two quick thoughts on it. First is we have to remember that the nature of sibling relationships is changing. So I'm in my 60s. When I grew up, I and almost everyone I knew had two, three, or four siblings. Uh, You know, now people are more likely to have one or at most two kids. 
And so there is less of that kind of a complex dynamic among lots of people. So I think we're experiencing that change. But I would second what Laurie says in our studies, there's a lot in common in some ways between friend relationships and sibling relationships. And one of the strongest drivers is how similar you are to the other person. So we like to think in our society that opposites attract. However, in general, for friendships, there's something we sociologists call homophily. Namely, like really does attract like. And the same is true among siblings. Two adult siblings tend to gravitate more towards one another if they share similar values, if their personalities are complementary. So I think there's a crossover there that the same factors in adulthood that drive who we like to be around in general in life also apply to siblings. So we tend to like folks who are more like us, and that's true for our brothers and sisters. Oh, that's fascinating. Another short break here on The Connection. We are talking about siblings and the important role that they play in our lives. That's Carl Pillimer and Lori Kramer. We're going to talk uh, much more after this very short break about siblings and why they matter. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. You're listening to The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Marty Moscow-Wayne. We are talking about sibling relationships, how our childhood relationships with our siblings can set the stage for how we see ourselves, how we treat other people, and how we view the world as adults. And again, our guests are Lori Kramer. She's a professor of applied psychology at Northeastern University. She's also a clinical psychologist. Carl Pillimer is with us as well. He's a professor of human development at Cornell University and professor of gerontology in medicine at the Wild Cornell Medical College. He wrote a book titled Fault Lines, Fractured Families and How to Mend Them. Let me play another clip, and this is actually from The Lion King, from uh, the 1994 animated film Power Hungry Scar, who was voiced by Jeremy Irons, is the second-born brother and next in line to the throne until his nephew Simba is born. And in this scene, King Mufasa, who was voiced by James Earl Jones, and Zuzu, voiced by Rowan Atkinson, scold Scar for not attending Simba's presentation celebration. As the king's brother, you should have been first in line. Well, I was first in line until the little hairball was born. That hairball is my son and your future king. Oh, I shall practice my curtsy. Don't turn your back on me, Scar. Oh, no, Mufasa. Perhaps you shouldn't turn your back on me. (laughs) Is that a challenge? Temper, temper. I wouldn't dream of challenging you. Pity. Why not? Well, as far as brains go, I got the lion's share. But when it comes to brute strength... I'm afraid I'm at the shallow end of the gene pool. (laughs) That covered a lot of our conversation. I I should say later in the film, Scar actually murders his brother Mufasa. And, of course, this is a theme we've seen in uh, plays like Hamlet and and Cain and Abel, the story of Cain and Abel in the book of Genesis. This is a weird segue, but, you know, I was frankly thinking of Harry and William, you know, the two brothers who... um, 
you know, their life is now an open book, as it has been for years now. Um, Harry wrote, wrote a memoir called Spare. And we see this this conflict, this rivalry being played out in public. And I don't think you have to care about the royal family to just, Laurie, frankly, be sad to see this kind of broken brother relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it breaks my heart. Now, I've never interviewed William and Harry. Me neither. <laughs> I, I haven't read I haven't read Spare uh, nor seen the documentary, but it does break my heart to see what they've gone gone through and particularly since we all know um what trauma they both experienced yeah. as children and how they really basically had each other uh t- to address those major stresses they they faced with the the death of their mother. Um, but yes, I, I am so hopeful that some way they'll find their ways back to one another. Yeah. But yeah, there's so many issues here that um, are reminiscent of this this theme in The Lion King. Um, but I think we also want to look at it from a broader family perspective, too. Um, really thinking about the fact that these are no longer children. You know, right. They're no longer just brothers in a household, you know, very large household. Um, but they also have new partners, and I think that adds this layer of complexity to their relationship that I can only imagine is is very challenging to them. So how these new wives deal with each other <laughs> and how these have um, the issues there may have been introducing some complication into to William and Harry's relationship. I am just, you know, speculating based on sure. what I've read. Sure. And and even moving beyond William and, and, and Harry, Carl, but just talking about as adults, I mean, it, as I think you both have mentioned, it's easy to lose track or, or lose touch with siblings. Um, months can go by, I would confess sometimes for myself as well, before um, picking up the phone or sending an email or a text or even going t- to visit, that it is easy to get ex- um, estranged because of the busyness, I think, of all of our lives. And then you throw in factors that people do marry other people, and that brings in a whole other dynamic. Can you speak to that? Yes, sure. And actually, because I wrote a book on estrangement, I found myself being interviewed a surprising number of times about Harry and Meghan, oddly enough. (laughs) And, you know, I would give an optimistic uh, spin for, um, for the following reason. In our studies of estrangement, when there was a pre-existing positive relationship, which it sounds like to some extent that, you know, there was in those families, these kinds of estrangements are more likely to reconcile among siblings. So, but I think really one problem there is litigating the entire relationship in the public eye. It does have some of the characteristics, though, of what we found in adulthood are risk factors for sibling estrangement. And one of those is definitely in-law relations. Uh, There's no question that in-laws, either when an in-law deliberately estranges a person from the family or the family doesn't approve, that can move its way uh, into estrangement. And also when there's competition over scarce resources. In ordinary families like our own, that can be money, wills, or inheritance. In this case, obviously, it's it's title, etc. But that kind of zero-sum game really comes into it. And uh, dissimilar values among siblings. And here again, I think you have this sense of radically different lifestyles and perspectives on life. So it really ties into a lot of what we know about how 
um, estrangements occur in more ordinary families than the royal one. Well, let's throw in another factor, Laurie, and I'm thinking of step-siblings, and I know we could do a whole Mm -hmm. hour on that, but talk about sort of introducing, you know, another child within the family. Mm -hmm. Um, How does that throw off some of the dynamics here? It throws everything off, (laughs) Uh, particularly when children enter, you know, or or part of this new blended family that um, the birth orders switch. Uh, it really leads everyone to question, you know, what are we doing here? Who's what? <laughs> how, what are our roles in relation to one another? Um, how is our relationship with our parents uh, going to be changing? What kinds of, there's issues of loyalty and allegiance and, you know, as, as well as just the simple day-to-day of how do we go about creating a new and different household that can accommodate these new people and how can we support uh, some positive relationships that are being developed through, you know, with the siblings, but also with step parents? I think it's a very confusing time. Um, and there's also situations where the kids are old enough to be leaving the family for college or independent work, and um, they may never really develop a relationship with one another where they w- might even truly consider themselves to be step siblings. There's another uh, sort of factor in, in the last couple of years, Carl. It seems like every interview I do, we talk about the pandemic. But nonetheless, you know, it has had such a huge effect on all of our lives. And I'm thinking a couple of years ago, you know, families, uh, many families were, you know, stuck at home with each other and with no particular outlet outside the house or the apartment. Um, how do you think that affected sibling relationships and, and relationships within the family? Unfortunately, there isn't time yet enough to have really good data, but there's fascinating suggestive data about that. Because you have to remember, we had two things happening at once. We had the effects of the pandemic and also the divisive effects of of the election, which caused at least temporary rifts in families. I think overall, from what we know, the pandemic led to greater contact among siblings. So someone who might have been somewhat estranged became part of the family email group, refriended people on Facebook. One thing that we know about social relationships is when people perceive the possibility of a limited time horizon, they often take action because they have anticipatory regret. What if I don't get back in touch and there's no time to do it? So I think we saw more contact and more engagement even among formerly estranged siblings. So I hate to say that a cloud like that has a silver lining, but one, I think, was increased contact between more distant members of families and, uh, you know, their relatives, and that certainly helped for siblings. So I think it was a marginally, at least, positive effect for sibling relationships. And how about for for little kids, for for young siblings, Lori? Did you see something similar? I mean, it's hard for them to have the kind of mortality, feelings of mortality that older people have, but nonetheless. No, they were, they were each other's, you know, playmates and friends. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So they really counted on each other to, for amusement, for entertainment, for just companionship when they really couldn't spend a lot of time with friends or, or be physically in school with classmates. It also seemed to set the stage for more conflict between kids. I heard from a lot more parents uh, during the pandemic who were really concerned about how to help their kids 
figure out ways to get along, particularly since they were also homebound. So both the positive <laughs> and the negative. And, you know, again, we just really understood how stressful this was for parents and kids. Um, but particularly, you know, parents were juggling um, their work, uh, caring for their kids, mm-hmm. dealing with so many health and, and medical issues and so much more. And, um, you know, the sibling issues that were emerging or accentuating themselves because of the close proximity that everybody was, was was certainly top of mind for them as well. And you're listening to The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. That's Lori Kramer. Also with us, uh, Carl Pillimer. I began the show with a, a clip of uh, of uh, Serena Williams talking about her sister Venus, and I want to play one more clip. And this is on Oprah Winfrey talking to both sisters, um, and Serena is explaining how she wanted to be just like Venus. Yeah, you wanted to dress like her, t- talk like I her. I did dress like, you dress her. like her. I do talk like her. <laughs> <laughs> it was really, uh, it was really tough for me to finally stop being Venus and become the person who I am, Serena. When did that happen? Uh, I'd say like, you know, two, two, only maybe two years ago. (laughs) I really like that clip, Carl. Just, you know, I I mean, lucky them to have have this relationship and to be able to compete against each other as they did for so many years on, on a tennis court. Yeah, you know, I try not to, as a social scientist, say too many prescriptive things, but I feel like there's a theme from what I've heard Lori saying that I feel cuts across, uh, you know, our work as well. I really do think that a certain amount of intentionality, of active engagement in sibling relationships to keep them fresh and keep them stable really does benefit most people. Our siblings are what, you know, we refer to as social capital. They're this latent source of help that we can rely on. They certainly are a lifelong source of identity. And as someone who has spent a lot of my career interviewing very old people, Mm. towards the end of your life, these kinds of relationships, the only people who've known you your entire life, become extraordinarily important. So I think working the way that Lori suggested with younger kids and really continuing to make the effort, unless the relationship is dangerous or abusive somehow, working on the relationships can really be valuable because they are unique in terms of life course history and shared experience. So I you know, do encourage people, if they're having sibling difficulties too, you know, explore them, work on them, and exert the effort to stay in touch. I think for a lot of people, especially people who were estranged in our studies and then reconciled, really found it to be a tremendously positive experience to have those relationships again. I know, Laura, you largely work with younger kids, but I'm also thinking for older kids often come together because a parent is dying or they are ill or, you know, Mm. there's some family, either crisis or problem that has to be addressed and the the family comes together for better or for worse. Um, How do you see that from your vantage point? Absolutely. And I think, you know, the quote from Venus and Serena, my goodness, Hmm. if that's not a model, (laughs) an inspiration, um, and really highlighting for everyone what the potential is for these relationships, I mean, that's just astounding. And I think that's one of the reasons that I'm so invested in this work, too, because I really believe that it's going to pay off, particularly in your older years, as as Carl has seen, um, building, sustaining that relationship, coming back together, 
uh, because we know during, um, you know, early adulthood, finding your career, your romantic partners, your jobs, and all of those sorts of things, building a family, um, leads often leads siblings, if they're not living very close together, um, to spend less, uh, have less time together or communicating. But to come back together in those older adulthood years can be so important, mm-hmm. so helpful. And we know that, um, I think Carl can, can, can talk more about the long-term health benefits that are potential for people as well who have a, a satisfying relationship with their with their sibling. Sure. And, and, and we're almost, I'm watching the clock here, but Carl, I did want to toss in something kind of related to what Laurie was saying there, which is, you know, oftentimes when siblings get together as, you know, as adults or even older adults, you kind of fall back into those same roles you had when you were five years old, right? <laughs> you know, people are, it's a very high conflict and challenging situation because siblings often haven't had to make decisions together for a lot of years. One strong piece of advice these are tremendously different often and estrangements or conflict really does result from who's going to care for mom or dad and what's going to happen. Do not hesitate to seek out help from a social worker, a counselor, someone who can help your family through this problem because there are serious problems that emerge among siblings. A geriatric social worker, some kind of a clinician can really help around those care decisions and keep your relationship strong with siblings. It is a flashpoint that causes a lot of problems in families. But And we're almost out of time here, but Carl, you're saying um, it's going to happen and you're going to have to deal with it. You are, and you should plan in advance and talk about it. Don't assume that one kid's going to take care of mom. That kid may plan to join the Peace Corps and live in Paris. <laughs> so you really have to talk it out in the family uh, long before any care needs arise. Well, you both have given us a lot to talk about and think about, and, and I appreciate you both joining us today on The Connection. Carl Pillimer, Professor of Human Development at Cornell University, Professor of Gerontology in Medicine at the Wild Cornell Medical College, wrote a book called Fault Lines, Fractured Families and How to Mend Them. Uh, Carl, thanks for joining us on The Connection. Oh, thanks so much for having us. You're very welcome. And Laurie Kramer, uh, Professor of Applied Psychology at Northeastern University. She's also a clinical psychologist. Laurie Kramer, thank you for joining us on The Connection as well. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. A pleasure for us as well. And thank you for join us, joining us as well. Many ways to be a part of this program. You can check out our website, whyy.org slash the connection, where you can sign up for a podcast and for our newsletter. You can also email us at the connection at whyy.org. Our engineer is Diana Martinez, Debbie Builder, senior producer of The Connection, Paige Murray Bessler, producer of The Connection. I'm Marty Moss Cohen, your host and executive producer, and I'll see you next Friday at noon. 